It is always an honor and a privilege and a joy to be preaching here at the Chicago cohort of SUM Bible College and Theological Seminary. You're my favorite people in the world, and it is one of my favorite things in the world to do, not just to preach the Word, but specifically to pour into and to equip those who are training for the five-fold ministry. And out of that passion, I happen to be teaching at another school, and this trimester, right alongside you guys, in fact, we're about to go into winter break at the same time as you, and, uh, and so right now at this other school, I am teaching pastoral epistles. And who knows what the pastoral epistles are? Three books of the Bible, what are they? That's right. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. And so in the first half of our trimester, we've been taking a deep dive into 1 Timothy, and I've been learning a lot. We've been basing our study on Gordon Fee's uh, commentary on the pastoral letters, and it's, it's powerful. Um, it's really changed my paradigm, my perspective, how I read this book. Um, for the longest time, I looked at these letters as um, like a handbook for pastors, hence pastoral epistles. And it was just these encouragements uh, from Paul to Timothy to say, that a boy, here's how you do it, here's how you run a church, keep fighting the fight. But with many of the letters of the Bible, not just the pastoral ones, uh, but 1 Corinthians, Galatians, several others, there's often a situation, there's often a crisis that is being addressed in these letters. Uh, and in 1 Timothy and in Titus as well, and, th and I actually get the title from Titus because in, in Titus chapter 1 verse 5, he says to him that he left him in Crete that he may put in order the things in the church. And so I get the title of this message, Set It in Order. Say that with me, Set It in Order. Set it in order. And those words are not expressly used in Timothy, but it's the same idea. Timothy is not coming so much as the pastor of this church in Ephesus, although I do disagree with Gordon Fee because I believe that he does become the pastor. You know, church history records that he remains in that church, in that city for the rest of his life, where he's eventually martyred uh, as they're having a parade to, to their false gods, and he's preaching to them to stop following these demons into to this empty way of life, and they stone him, and they drag his body in the streets. That's what church history records. And so that, to me, would suggest that though he was once put there as sort of a fix-it man to, to remind this congregation of Paul's way of life and to bring things back into order, that he would remain there as a pastor. But I never quite saw it like that, even though it was right there in the text that we're about to read. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Look, just note in verse 1, by the command. This, ver this uh, word will come up quite a few times in First uh, Timothy. Verse 2, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the introduction of the letter, the salutation, 
Paul identifying himself as an apostle, as um, apostolos, literally means a sent one. And I always liken it to how Jesus was sent into the world by his father. That's often how he identifies himself in his sense of mission, especially in John's gospel. And so where he says in John, as the father has sent me, so I send you. We think about how Jesus was sent into the world on the Father's behalf to do the Father's work, and now we are sent into the world, or Paul here says that he's sent on Jesus' behalf to do Jesus' work. And he does so, again, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. I pointed out that word because it's going to come up quite a bit, because not only is Paul an apostle by the command of God, but then Paul will command Timothy, and Timothy in turn will command people in the church. And so we're going to see that come into play very shortly. He identifies Timothy as his true son in the faith, not his biological son, but a spiritual son, somebody that Paul perhaps led to the Lord. Um, We're not positive of that. Uh, but what we do know is that from a very young age, Timothy basically left his, his home of origin in Lystra, his, 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 up, his family, and he went to accompany uh, Paul in the ministry. And in many places, Paul refers to him as his son. And he says that Timothy is able to impart to others Paul's life and teaching because he has followed him so closely for so long and so faithfully. And here's, here we see grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is a Christian salutation. Um, now, Paul is, of course, Jewish as well. And in the Hebrew, peace is shalom. And sometimes if you meet Jews today, particularly religious Jews, they still greet each other with shalom aleichem or something to that effect. And they're basically saying peace to you. And so the Christian greeting then adds uh, grace and here mercy. So in many letters, you'll see grace and peace, but he just adds a little mercy for some razzle dazzle. And, (laughs) you know, mercy... um, in the, in the biblical sense, is often in reference to God's tenderness and compassion to his people. And so that's a wonderful, it's a wonderful salutation, and we can employ that as we greet one another as well. And, and it wouldn't be over-spiritual. I know sometimes we think it's over-spiritual to use language like this, but don't be afraid and ashamed to, to do that sort of thing. It's really biblical, and it's really wonderful. Now let's read verses 3 through Seven, and we'll get into the meat of the message. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command, there's that word again, that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about, what they so confidently affirm. We'll stop right there. So this sets up the situation. Why was Timothy sent to Ephesus? It was to set the church in order. 
It was to teach, command, there, that, and there's the word there. It's the same word that, that, that is upon Paul. God commands Paul. Paul, be an apostle. Go preach to the Gentiles. Go to the ends of the world to proclaim Jesus. That's a command binding upon Paul. Paul must obey God's command. Similarly, Timothy now has authority from Paul, but ultimately from Christ, to command people in the church not to teach certain things. And what are those things? Well, they're called false doctrines. Things that are untrue. Teachings about God and about the faith that are untrue. And, and, and so they're not to do that. They're commanded not to do that. And they're commanded not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And so Timothy now, with his authority, is basically going to come there. He's not going to suggest. He's not going to sit down and have a, a coffee talk. He's not going to nuance things to death. He's simply going to command them not to do these two things. Teach false doctrine, devote themselves to endless genealogy. And why is this such a problem? Because... According to verse 4, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So these guys are undermining the work of God. They're, they're uh, promoting things that are just unhelpful, unedifying. It's not helping anybody get closer to the Lord. It's not winning the lost. It's not, it's not making Jesus look better. But all it's, it's just a got us all you know, in, these, in these fruitless conversations right, and, and debates. And this is not necessarily a message to say we never debate or reason or things like that. Um, because the fact is, Timothy has to do that to some extent. When Timothy commands these guys to stop doing what they're doing, you think they're going to go down without a fight? No. They're going to be just as snarky, but actually, you know what I'm saying? They're going to they're gonna, you know, have their comebacks to Timothy, so Timothy's going to have to be argumentative and confrontational as he addresses them. But again, the, the things that they're arguing about are meaningless. And the way I like to think of it, because there are things worth arguing about, right? There are things worth fighting for and debating over. Truth, fundamental truth, core truth, is worth fighting for. It's worth fighting over. It's worth arguing for. It's worth confronting people over. But sometimes people get into the minutiae of things, and, and, and that's what these folks are supposedly doing. Now, it, and that's what's um, hinted at when it talks about meaningless talk, okay? That's verse 6, meaningless talk, genealogies, and controversies and myths, okay? So we've all met Christians who are like this, and it's borderline cultish, okay? And sometimes it just is cultish. But you know, like, like the moment you start talking to somebody, they're in weirdy territory. Like you think you're talking to a Christian, but within 30 seconds, they're harping on some pet doctrine, you know, right? And, and instead of just, instead of what? Um, instead of what verse 5 says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. They don't seem to value these, these things and esteem these things. They don't seem to have a testimony of these things, but all they have is a head full of fruitless arguments for pointless doctrines, okay? And, and again, it can be borderline cultish. 
the way I would deem it is in many cases, these are divisive disciples. It's not so much they're teaching an outright heresy. An outright heresy would be to teach something opposed to the Trinity, for example, or to teach Jesus was a created being, or, or something like that. That would be a heresy because it would contradict, uh, it, it would put you immediately in this, you're, you're a son of hell, right? But what these folks are doing, the, the bad fruit is, is more in, in how they are presenting it and how they're pushing it on the church and how they're making it an issue, a divisive issue. See, even in a church like ours where we know what we believe and we know why we believe it, uh, you know, there's always room for differences on subjects of theology, eschatology, things relating to the end times, for example, um, things like that. But there are going to be folks that are going to take those issues and make them the main things, and they're going to argue and they're going to fight over it and they're going to try to basically give themselves a sense of superiority because of their perceived correctness on a said issue and again it's just divisive it's argumentative nobody's getting closer to Jesus nobody's loving one another nobody's reaching the lost it's just fruitless stuff I I remember when I worked at Teen Challenge a long time ago and I was hired as the education coordinator and um, I was shocked to find that the guy before me who was doing the job was, was uh, just basically what he would do like five days a week for these guys was put on the, the truth behind hip-hop DVDs and the truth behind Disney and the truth behind this and the truth behind that. And I'm not going to name the name of the guy who, who makes them, but he's pretty famous for it and he's still active today. And he's, he's, he's a funny guy, actually. Um, a lot funnier than I thought at first, and, and, and not in a good way. Um, but at the time, I'm like, how is this helping recovering addicts live godly lives to become the men that God made them to be? How is, like, this whole conspiracy world, like, where, pe- where you're examining, you know, what people do with their hands and stuff and, and, and reading into these different symbols and colors and numbers and all these things. Like, I already knew Jay-Z was full of the devil. I didn't need your documentary to tell me that. Um, how is that helping anybody? You know, it's, it's not. It's just going to, you may attract a group of like-minded people, but they're going to be so argumentative, they'll all turn on each other. It's not going to help anybody. And so the bad fruit, and it's not necessarily like if you, if you like on the side believed that sort of thing was going on, that's fine. You believe it's like some Illuminati thing is going on. Again, I don't need to believe the Illuminati to know that the devil is, is running a lot of things in this world, you know? But if you wanted to believe something like that, that's fine. But don't bring that to the Bible study and, and try to hijack the, the lesson. You know, you don't, you don't do that sort of thing. And that seems to be the kind of thing these guys are into. Now, with many of these concerns in the first century church, there's, there's usually not like a one-to-one uh, parallel. Uh, like, for example, how many of you have ever been pressured to be circumcised? Right? No, you haven't. But in the first century church, Juan has you got to resist them, brother. There you go. That's not for salvation. 
but I bring that up because that was an issue in Galatians. That was an issue in that church, and people were trying to make that the thing that, that you must be on the right side of. You must be circumcised to be a part of God's people. And, and we have to then take that into our modern context and understand the principle of it, right? That people are, whether it's circumcision or whether it's some other religious ritual or, or some works, okay? When you try to add those things to Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 2, if you, if you try to count on those things for your righteousness, Christ will be of no value to you. So that's the principle, Whatever, whatever thing you're counting on, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus whatever equals nothing. Amen? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So there's a, there's a principle there, and there's a principle here. Like we can, we can look at, we could get into the details of, of what these genealogies and controversies were. According to the commentary, it had a lot to do with extra biblical Jewish writings, things that are not in Scripture, but were Jewish traditions, and these guys were, you know, having their their um, their little conversations about that. But I I I think the principle though is is what's binding is people are taking minor things and they're taking peripheral issues, and they're making them divisive issues. You see that by trying to insert that and trying to get everybody on that side of things. So, the, again, the goal of the command that that Paul is giving Timothy and then Timothy to these folks is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so you can you can argue and you could have correct theology by the way on a lot of things. You could be right on a lot of things, but sometimes people fail to display love. They fail to display a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Bad fruit. You can have correct teaching. You can be right. You can, you can um, have a, a hundred proof texts for what you're trying to argue and all that. But these things were Paul's concern. And these folks were a bad leaven in the lump. So he's kind of going to set those things in order. And the point of this message is to teach you as leaders in the church, those who will be in the course of time, I think all of you will be in Senior leadership. In fact, you could find yourself sitting at a lot of tables with a lot of big names and powerful leaders in the church. Not just this church, but churches around the country. Who knows? And as such, you have a sacred command to set things in order. And you have to be willing to communicate and to confront Okay, when things are not in order, that's not okay. Now, granted, the command here is not to make sure that nobody ever sins or no, nothing ever goes wrong. Until Jesus comes back, people will fall into sin, people will struggle, people will have all kinds of hardships, even in the church. But to set things in order uh, implies that things are not in order. And they're not according to God's order. In other words, church isn't being done the way God said it should be done. The leadership isn't set up the way God wants it to be set up. And the leaders aren't doing what God wants them to do. Another thing I found quite eye-opening here in this, in this letter and my study of it recently is that 
when, when, it, when it talks about elders and deacons, chapter 3, you know that chapter? Everyone should know that. Qualifications there. The reason that it is there is not for Timothy to ordain leaders, but to Timothy, for Timothy to hold those current, the current crop of elders to that standard because many of them aren't living right. That's why in chapter 5, we'll look at it shortly, he will say that those elders who are caught in sin, you are to rebuke publicly before all. So he has to set things in order. There's problems with the leadership. There are folks in the leadership. It's not just that guy who comes to your Bible study who's a weirdy who tries to hijack your conversation with some weird doctrines. There are elders in the church who ain't right. They ain't right, and he's got to set it in order. So here are some, here's a few things you're going to have to do. Um, as I said, you're going you're gonna to need to communicate and confront Okay, you need to you're going to need to have difficult conversations with people where you are correcting false teaching, where you are rebuking them. And to rebuke means simply to tell somebody, stop, whatever evil thing, whatever false thing, whatever foolish thing they're doing. You strongly tell them, stop without qualification. Stop. Stop what you're doing. And it often comes with an ultimatum. That if you don't stop, we'll have to excommunicate you. If you don't stop, I can't consider you a Christian. If you don't stop, you are in danger of the fire of hell. We need to be very bold and clear when we talk to people, especially as leaders. And you see this on some level now in your ministries, where, like in youth, how many are youth leaders? Okay. Like in youth, you got some sassy youth. Anybody you ever have a sassy youth? Right? And you got to sit them down and you got to you got to call it out. Right? That's on a small level. But think about it. As I said, you guys are going to be senior leaders. You guys will be national leaders. And the need to deal with those things only gets bigger and more consequential. And so you need, I don't care if it's the sassy teenager or it's a, a pastor of a major ministry or an elder in your church. you got to set it in order. You have to be willing to have, sit them down, have the conversation, and, do th- and, and get that thing right. Get that leader right. Get God's house right. You have to be willing to do that. So the number one thing that we're addressing is false teachers. That's, that's, that's who we're going to have to confront as leaders. There are going to be people who are, you know, teaching those things. I, I talked about the flavor of false teaching that, that Paul seemed to be concerned about. Um, these, these divisive and, and folks, these uh, people who, who just make their pet doctrines the main things. Um, but, of course, there are those who are just outright heretics, okay? And so there will be people in, in the church who want to remain there undercover. I'm not talking about Mormons, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, Muslims, although they may sometimes prey upon lukewarm Christians who don't know basic Christian doctrine. They may, they may, they may prey upon them. I'm not talking about them, but there are people who want to remain on the inside of a church as, as much as possible to gain as much of a following as possible and to lead as many people astray as possible. 
that their audience and their prey, they're preying upon Christians, they're preying upon your church. And there will be folks who try to do that. Sometimes it's very intentional and very malicious. And sometimes it may just be somebody who has a very wrong idea about something, very wrong, but if you correct them and teach them, they can learn. So that can be there as well. And then that goes along with divisive disciples, okay? False teachers and then divisive disciples, like what we've seen here. How many have, developed, have, have dealt with that? Divisive people, folks who just need to make an issue out of everything, get offended about everything, and, and get people on their side and all of this stuff. So, so you have to deal with those people. Those, and ironically, those are the, the people you need to talk to the most are sometimes the people you want to talk to the least. Let's be real. Because you know, you know you're going to get some sass. You know they're not just going to say, thank you, thank you for that correction, brother. I, I needed to hear that. No, you're not going to get that. They're going to tell you. They're going to tell you what they think about you. They're going to tell you everything. They're going to, you know, and and they're not going to make it easy. And so we. So we, we know that there's divisive people, and we have to deal with them. We have to be willing to do that. And so we all have different personality types and different temperaments. I get that. Not everybody's as extroverted. But we, we sometimes take this to make excuses for ourselves. Look, boldness is not just a personality trait. Boldness is a Christian virtue. So you, you can't just say, well, I'm not extroverted. That's just not my gift. That's not just my calling. If you're called to leadership, you're called to confront. And so you must be willing to deal with that person. You must be, you must, because you're guarding the integrity of the church. You're guarding the integrity of the gospel. You're guarding your sheep from these people and their teaching. Other things we'll have to set in order. Struggling saints and sinning saints. Now, there can be a difference here. Struggling saints and sinning saints. A struggling saint may be somebody who's not in sin, but their immaturity, their lack of wisdom, means they need a lot of correction and a lot of help to get along in life and to get where they need to be. And so in a church like ours, in a generation like ours, where so many young men are fatherless, and I'm going to put myself here, guys, so don't know what I hope if you feel like you fit this description, don't feel like I'm picking on you because I needed this kind of help too. Uh, where so many young men really lack, again, fathers and, and, and they lack direction and structure in their lives, they come to a church like this and they're going to learn how to be a man. Amen? They're, they're going to learn that. We're not going to accept you know, you riding the bus until you're 45, if you are perfectly capable of uh, getting a driver's license, amen, and, and, and somehow, you know, get in the car, I don't care if it's a hoopty, and then you take care of that car, 
you know, and all that stuff. And these are lessons that I had to learn as, as, as well as many people that I've known. But we got to help those struggling saints along. And sometimes you can feel like, am I meddling? Am I going too far? No, we're helping. We're shepherding. You got to know the difference. I am thankful for the people in my life. It, again, not sin issues. It wasn't the porn, it wasn't pornography, it wasn't this and that. It was just immaturity. It was just I wasn't adulting. <laughs> At a certain age, you need to be adulting. I wasn't there. And that's just an example. But there may be many, uh, many areas where people are just immature, they lack self-awareness, and they lack people skills, they lack life skills. And we just have to help them out because they're struggling. And that's okay. Again, this calls for having those tough conversations. Sometimes it's not tough because they're going to be, you know, angry and defensive. But, you know, sometimes you're going to deal with folks who, man, when you start to talk to them, they're going to have this whole sob story. They're going to say, woe is me. They're going to have all this stuff. And, and, and they're going to try to lay that on you. And they're going to make their problems seem like, they're the mo they're the worst problems somebody could have. Like you, you, you know about this whole election fraud. Well, my problems are worse and and more complex than the election right now, <laughs> right? <laughs> like they're gonna make it seem like that, and so it's like you know you sometimes don't want to talk to those people either. But we must set things in order. We must be willing to have conversations with struggling saints and people with problems, and sometimes it's just your problems aren't that big. It's just you don't know how to deal with them. And so people sometimes need a lot of help to get perspective, to get that, uh, it, it, to, to, get, to get the help that they need, to, to know how to do things. And again, so it's like training wheels, guys. And it's amazing, you know, just how many adults we meet that are just so immature in some ways that they need this kind of help. And, and so I distinguish the struggling saint then from the sinning saint, and that's Guys, we're going to deal with um, all sorts of issues, adultery, sexual sins, you know, drug use, all sorts of things. That's not going away, okay? Look, Jesus was the perfect pastor, and he had Judas, okay? So we can't expect that there's never going to be those things. It's, it's like the proverb says, if you don't have any oxen in your, in your stalls, your stalls will be clean. But if you have a lot of oxen in your stalls, and you want ox, because ox do stuff for you, you know, in that agricultural sense. You get the metaphor. You'd rather have oxen than no oxen. But if you have oxen, you have the mess to clean. If you're a leader, you'd rather have people with you than not with you. But the more people, the more, the more messes. The more things that we're going to have to, and, and so we have to do that. We, and that not only means helping and counseling people, but this goes into the next one, that's lacking leaders, okay? Because at times it will call for church discipline. And there are many churches that don't do this. They have zero sense of church discipline where you are actually holding especially leaders because it's one thing, the person who comes on Sundays, they're in and out. Maybe they're in 101, and they're going to be there for a long time. But you have somebody that's an elder or a deacon in the church, and they're not living right. That, that's, that's a whole other thing, because 1 Timothy 3, as, as we alluded to, 
says they must be above reproach. They must be blameless in their walk with God and with man. And so when you see people who are substantially diverting from this and, and living in ways we, we can feel tempted to, to just want to sweep it under the rug. And that's what a lot of people do because they're afraid. They fear man. Or they don't care. And they just want the show to go on. Things are going. People are coming to church. Tithes are coming in. Everything's fine. God is blessing us. Yeah, my leader's cheated on his wife. But God forgives. And we start making excuses that we would have never made. We start making excuses for people. We'll make excuses for ourselves that we would have never made before once we know, like, man, if I deal with this, things have to change. If I deal with this, there's going to be a fallout. And you know we're part of a church that practices church discipline. Some of you have been around seasons where folks have taken, tried to basically take their Bible study and form a church out of it and, and go out with their slander. We, we know how, how those things go. And why? Because we've, we've tried to have those crucial conversations with those leaders about things in their life that needed to be addressed. That's why it says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, it says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. All of you should know this verse because it's in our church's problem-solving protocols that we take sinning leadership very seriously. If people are found to be an actual sin in our leadership, things that bring reproach upon them to the point of, of disqualification or where you're, you're getting in that, in that direction, you're in danger, we, we deal with it. We don't sweep it under the rug. So that's there in our, in our own church protocols. If an elder is found in sin, we don't entertain the accusation unless two or three bring it. In other words, um, it's innocent till proven guilty. And that's the way it was in the Old Testament. That He's quoting the Old Testament there when he says two or three witnesses. You couldn't just have, could you imagine? Could you imagine like somebody, TJ, just saying, TJ, hit on me. TJ, try to you know, force himself on me. Just some person, just out of their own, out of their own evil uh, desires to, to hurt you or to get attention or whatever their evil motives were, right? And just based on their own word, you could be in jail. Like, how evil is that? How evil is that? Not only is it evil of the person to falsely accuse you, but then it would be evil of people to, like, basically, you know, lock you up and, and punish you based on just one person's word. There's got to be witnesses, proof. And, and in our modern day, some of those witnesses can be digital. Do you have the receipts? Do you have the screenshots? You know what I mean? But the bottom line is, if you accuse an elder, you're, you're making a serious thing because then when we're going to have to possibly remove this person and 
And, and that, can, that can have a, a very uh, significant impact on the church. And we've already ordained them with the assumption that they're above reproach. So you're, like, you're basically accusing a godly person, somebody that we've known and trusted, of being ungodly. So we don't entertain accusations unless there's actual proof and, and, and witnesses. There could be somebody who just doesn't like you. They want to ruin your reputation. They want to be malicious. We wouldn't let that stand, okay? But if somebody is caught sinning, you are to reprove before everyone, okay? Now, how this is carried out, how this is applied in modern churches can vary. We've given thought to this. What does it mean before everyone? Does it mean before the presbytery, the group of elders over the church? Does it mean to the whole congregation that we're going to bring it out on a Sunday? Hey, brother brother and sister so-and-so aren't here with us, and here's why. Or, 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 or maybe even brother and sister so-and-so are going to come up here, and they're going to tell you what they did. Um, the before everyone, I think, is the key, how you interpret that. Nevertheless, there is accountability and consequences for your actions as a leader in the church. And he says in verse 21, I charge you. And that same word, uh, charge is, is the same word as command in the Greek. I charge you, I command you, in the sight of God and in Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality. And do nothing out of favoritism. You know what partiality is? It's when you treat people according to different standards. Okay? So you think of like racism is essentially partiality. You treat people by different standards according to the color of their skin. That's a, it's a form of partiality. To show partiality in a church setting could be, I'm going to treat this person by a different standard because... We've been friends forever. Come on. We've, been, we've, we've known each other. We go way back. I'm not going to embarrass him in front of everybody. and I'm not going to make this weird. We have a great thing going. So you're going to treat them differently and hold them to a standard other than God's word. Or it could be that you just, you're afraid of that person because they have such a strong personality. Or because you know, like, man, this, this could split our church. This, this, could, this could go ugly. This could go awry. If I confront this person, they get mad because they, they got a lot of following. A lot of people respect them. A lot of people are going to side with them. It's not going to look good. Even though I'm doing the right thing, people will think I'm wrong for it. So I'm going to hold this person to a different standard other than God's Word. And, and guys, I'm, I'm seeing this not so much here, but I, I'm seeing it on, on a national level. Major denominations, major seminaries, not this one, uh, that are basically doing this thing where they're aiding and abetting pastors who are teaching false doctrine, who are living immoral lives. They're aiding and abetting uh, faculty of major seminaries that are teaching false doctrine, all because it's basically a one big good old boys club. 
And once you're a good old boy, you don't talk bad about the good old boys. Another way to think of it, it's, it's the guild. They're all part of a guild. And basically, it, and, and these people are friends, and there's, you know, and so they can, they can become very fearful. Like, you, you just don't mess with it. It almost becomes like, it's, it's almost becomes very ungodly and political, honestly. Because certain people become untouchables. But we must put truth even before friendships. We must put truth before church politics. We must put truth above our own reputation. Because sometimes, you know, we're, we're going to come out looking like the wrong one. We're going to come out, and instead of them being kicked out, you'll get kicked out. <laughs> Which I've seen happen as well. I've seen, I've seen the whistleblowers in these places. They're the ones getting kicked out instead of the folks that they're trying to confront and hold to the standard of God's word. Sad. And so we must set that in order. And, and, so, and to this point, it, it's kind of dealing with people other than ourselves, okay? But I, I do want to talk about how you got to set yourself in order as well. But before I do that, before I do that, look at 1 Timothy 4.16. How do we set things in order? By words and actions. By our words and actions. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, so notice, it says, watch your life and doctrine. Okay? He says here, watch your life. In other words, how you live your life, your walk. Make sure that you are doing these things as well that you know you're 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 we're expecting other people to live in holiness and teach correct things well that obviously is true for you as well and then he he also reiterates that in verse 12 it says don't look any don't let anyone look down on you because you are young but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So, up until this point, I think, I think words is a given. We need to teach correct things, and we need to teach the whole counsel of God. Okay? Oftentimes, where heresy creeps in is the stuff you're not talking about. Okay? Okay? Where false teachers get their foot in the door is they start talking about the stuff you're not talking about. Where the world and its views get in the door is when they start talking about the stuff pastors ain't talking about. That's why so many Christians are mixed up on politics because their pastors don't talk about it. Their pastors act like the Bible has nothing to say about that. And so our teaching... We must be thorough, teaching everything the Bible teaches, teaching the whole counsel of God, whether that means going from Genesis to Revelation, as some pastors are in the habit of doing, book by book, verse by verse, and that, that takes years to, to do, but some pastors do it. Uh, but there's, there's different you know, ways, but, but we must be exhaustive and thorough in our teaching of the Bible. That's our words. Our words are also in, again, our, our, our ability to communicate and confront when things are not in order to those individuals who are out of order. 
But then there's our actions. Set an example. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. How you live. And I think of it like this. It's such a simple concept, but it's leading by example. Monkey see, monkey do. I think Juan is the only other father here in this room. I, 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 was, I was just having to like compute for a second. Any other parents? I don't want to miss anybody. I know Juan, and he's got Elijah, and he's got a child on the way. Praise God. And, and he can attest as well as other parents how your children will not learn just from what you say, but what you do. And they're going to pick up on your mannerisms and the things you say, whether intentionally or unintentionally, for better or for worse. They're going to learn from you. They're going to learn by your example. And so the best way to instill Christian ethics, or, or, or one of the best ways, along with the clear teaching of the word, the be- one of the best ways to instill Christian ethics and the Christian way of life is to model it. To model a life of prayer, to model a life of self-control, to model a godly home, uh, to model maturity and respectability and excellence in all areas. If you want people to be those things, you got to be those things. Do you want a hundred disciples who are like you? You should be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. So we've been talking to this point about setting people in order other than yourself, but you must set yourself in order. You must set your body in order. A lot of these qualifications, let's just glance at 1 Timothy 3. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the early qualifications for, for leaders has to do with your, a, your ability to govern your, your own vessel, okay? Yourself, your body, your passions, your desires, okay? That's why it, your emotions, to, to be temperate, self-controlled, I'm looking at verse 2, uh, has a temperate, self-controlled, respectable, not violent, but gentle. I'm, I'm just glancing at the ones that pertain to your governance over yourself, okay? Over your bodily passions, over your emotions, over your appetites. You must be able to govern yourself. Then you must be able to govern your home. That's why it says in verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So you must first govern yourself. Then as a family man or woman, you must govern your home. And if you can do those things well, that will be a vote of confidence that you can help govern the church. But if you can't govern yourself and you can't govern your family, how can we trust you to govern the church? So we must be in control of our passions, our desires, our appetites, our emotions, our spending. All of these things must be put in check. We must set our own selves in order before we ask others to be set in order. Amen? And so your, your body and then your spirit as well. I see in chapter 4 where Paul says to uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse uh, 
verses, uh, verse 8. It says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. You must set in order your spiritual walk. Notice I'm, I'm making a subtle distinction. When I say governing yourself, I mean all of those other things. But then it's your spiritual walk, your walk with the Lord, your discipline of prayer, of Bible study, of meditation, scripture, memorization, being prepared, being a workman approved to handle the word of truth. You must come correct when you are dealing with the things of God. To not deal with them in a shabby manner, but to have a consistent and disciplined approach to, to, to God in prayer, to worshiping God, and to studying and internalizing His Word. Amen? Amen. And what's the goal in all of this? We, we saw in, in, in chapter 1 that the goal of the command is love, and it comes from a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a good conscience. But here's another, a few other things that I think Paul is concerned with. It's our reputation with outsiders, okay? And this kind of is bringing us to our close. We're actually going to have an early close here to this. We started early. We're going to end early because I have class two after this. But what's, what's the end game? Why do we set it in order? What's the concern? For Paul, it was the reputation that the church has with outsiders, you can see this in many of his letters, but you see it here, especially in the qualifications for elders. They must have a good reputation with outsiders. Could you imagine Christians who make Jesus look bad? Because your reputation becomes the church's reputation, becomes Jesus' reputation. And people will begin to come to conclusions. Even though you may not be representing Christ very well, you still represent Christ to the people around you. And these were folks whose families were out of order. They were drunken. They were, they were all these things. They had all this reproach against them, and they're naming Christ. Like, could you imagine that? Like, where Metro Praise becomes the church that houses adulterers. That Metro Praise is the church that houses uh, uh, thieves. And, 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 and slanderers, you know, could you imagine that? Now, sometimes that reputation can come on us for different reasons. There may be somebody who was, was here once in a blue moon, and, and then they met another pastor. I'm, I'm thinking of a specific one where somebody used to go to our church, had a lot of issues, and we were trying to help them. But it wasn't like they were up here singing. They weren't up here preaching. They, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, sometimes, sometimes when you meet that person and then they name our church, that those, those people who they're talking to get the impression, oh, yeah, they, well, I met so-and-so, you know, and, and they were cray-cray and they had a lot of problems. And, man, I don't, know, I don't know how you put them in leadership. No, I didn't put them in leadership. No, we didn't, you know. But sometimes people will get those conclusions. Sometimes it's not a deserved reputation because we're not really encouraging or affirming the behaviors of some folks. But again, it's where we become tolerant of these things. It's where we do aid and abet that. And, th and you're seeing that in big churches now. You're seeing that we're at the top, very top level. The senior pastor sleeping with women, having affairs, and those affairs going under the rug. Your favorite pastor's favorite pastor, Carl Lentz, right? 
for, for years. And then it becomes a reproach. And now his mistress is coming out on uh, the Today Show. You had Pastor James McDonald, Harvest Bible Chapel, one of the biggest mega churches in this area. And he had this whole culture. I mean, so many accusations from so many folks. This cumulative case of just, just bullying and ungodly, rude, mean-spirited behavior that is unbecoming of any Christian, let alone a pastor. And now you got Man Cow Muller on the radio. Some of you know Man Cow. He was like Howard Stern, the, the Chicago version of Howard Stern. I think he got saved, started hanging out with this pastor. But now he's on the radio and he's and he's talking about that. And the whole and the and then people begin to say, just think all Christians are hypocrites on account of these guys. All Christians are hypocrites. They're all for money. And and what does that then do? It strengthens their justification to not be Christians. Because they have come to represent Christ, although they represented him very, very poorly. And so that's Paul's concern. It is with our reputation in this world, because our reputation in the world is Jesus' reputation. And then the last thing is the integrity of the gospel. And I'm going to read on from where I started, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, as he continues to address the specific false teachings. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for righteous, for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, those who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and whatever is contrary to the sound doctrine... That conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So he's commanding Timothy to command men who claim to be teachers of the law to stop commanding the false things they're teaching. Okay, And he, he explicitly says that these guys claim to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. And now he contrasts their misuse of the law, and he says, here's how it's used properly. The law has this, the, the, the application of the law for us in the new covenant, and it was always this. It is to restrain evil. It is to define evil and to restrain evil and to punish evil, okay? It, it defines evil, tells us the difference between right and wrong, and then it restrains evil because it promises to punish evil, okay? And so when you see in a society that, that laws are not being followed, that laws are backwards and abortionists are protected and, and people who rape women can, can get away with it, get a slap on the wrist, a relatively you know, minor sentence. The more people feel like they can get away with things or the more that the lines are blurred and those evil things are not being defined, they're going to do it more and more. You know, think about it. Like if there were no laws against rape, you women should never leave the house if there are no laws against rape because guys who would not do it otherwise would do it because they would get away with it because there's no law to define it as evil and there's no law that promises to punish it. Hence, they are not restrained in doing it. That's the point there. And, and these, by the way, th these things are all basically contradictory to the Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, it mentions those who kill fathers and mothers. 
as opposed to honor your father and mother. Murderer, you shall not kill. Sexually immoral, homosexuality, you shall not commit adultery. All of these things are, are contradictory to the written law in the law of Moses in the Old Testament. But notice, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. And sound actually means wholesome or healthful. Healthy. Healthy teaching as opposed to diseased teaching. As opposed to a sickness, a cancer, a leprosy that will corrupt and will spread through the body of Christ. The things these folks are teaching ultimately undermine and subvert sound teaching. Because you're giving all, and like I said, it may not be heresy. Like you might believe something weird on the side. It ain't going to send you to hell. But then you start to make an issue of it and you start to promote meaningless talk about it. Then you're in trouble because now you're taking away from wholesome talk to focus on meaningless talk. You're taking away from healthy things to talk about unedifying things. It's, it's, it's almost like there's the healthy diet of Scripture, the balanced diet of Scripture, and this person is, is basically giving the body of Christ candy and garbage, right? It's kind of like that. But again, this is, it's even more than that. It's not just unhealthy. It is a disease that these folks are teaching and preaching, and it's taking away from the sound doctrine. That conforms to the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, the proclamation of Jesus' victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave, and the, and the promise of adoption to sonship, and new life, and victory over this world for all who believe. This gospel concerning the glory that is the fame and renown of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Let's all stand. When we don't set it in order, when we don't take care of problems in the church, it never stays isolated. It never stays isolated. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so if we start allowing divisive disciples to keep doing what they're doing, when we allow sinning saints and sinning leaders to keep doing what they're doing, it's not going to stop there. It's not just going to be a few bad apples. It's going to spoil the whole bunch. It's going to spoil the church. And then everything goes because you've compromised in one area. You've compromised in every area. Now the gospel itself is, is up for grabs. Because if you're not going to deal with the person sinning or teaching falsely in this area, you're not going to be any bolder or equipped to, to get someone who's really teaching that false stuff, who's really teaching against God's word. Help us, Lord. We pray for courage in Jesus' name. We pray for boldness in Jesus' name. Lord, impart to these disciples of yours boldness. The Bible says that the, right, that the wicked flee, though nobody pursues them. But the righteous are as bold as lions. And so I pray for that in Jesus' name, that they will be bold. Because they know that when they issue a command... When they command somebody to stop sinning, when they command somebody to stop teaching false doctrine, they're not just commanding based on their opinion or their preference. 
They're not just commanding in the authority of their own name, but they're commanding based on the immutable, eternal Word of God and by the authority by which Jesus told us, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. We go with authority. Lord, I pray for every one of us that we will never be afraid to look anyone in the eye when it is our obligation, when it is our sacred duty, when it is our charge to correct, to confront, to rebuke, to set in order, to discipline, whatever it is, Lord. I pray we will never have that. Though there may be, you know, a little bit of reticence, we're going to do it. Though we realize there's going to be a fallout and we're going to have to deal with more issues because these, pers- these people won't listen, Lord, we're going to do it because we do- we're going to do what is right. Because you will hold us accountable. We love you and bless you. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.